Hello, good morning and welcome. My name is Brad, I'm an anchor here at OCC. Please rise as I share the word of God. We'll be reading from John 19, chapters 28, verses 28 through 42. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, a man who had early visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips in linen. This was in accordance with the Jew Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. All right. Well, thanks be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. Man, I, uh, how about Brett Wintrode coming up and crushing the reading today? Man, I could, you, they should hire you for the Bible app, you know? Sit back and just listen to that at night, you know? Some Brett, that's what we, us in the South, we needed some Brett Wintrode in our life, right? A little different than Max McLean or whoever, whoever reads it. Well, man, if you got your Bibles, throw me to, uh, to that chap chapter in, uh, in John, chapter 19. Uh, that's where we'll be. You know, I was thinking about uh, this series and just uh, even uh, the series title and thinking about how words matter. And you know, every time we get through our season and we're planning uh, the things that we're going to be doing and uh, trying to, you know, faithfully um, put the right words to the things that we want to walk away with, the things that 
um, actually kind of find their way into, to our, into our heart. And I just thought, you know, when we, when we started thinking about accomplished, it's just a simple word. We're like, you know, we went through a bunch of creative thoughts and banter about, you know, what the series title. And then accomplished, we're like, oh, yeah, okay, accomplished. And then the more and more we read it and the more and more we saw those words and the more we, you know, kind of saw it put together, we thought, okay, words matter. A single word that explains everything. You know, I was thinking about this idea, you know, when, when you hear the, the, you know, Jesus, there's a, there's a few, few words that he speaks on the cross, um, but they're arguably some of the most important words that, that form our theology and inform our thoughts about who we know God to be. And, you know, I'm in, we're in a, this, the spring season, and I don't know what it is about this, this season. I don't know what it is about uh, what's been going on, but I have done more premarital counseling than I have done probably in the last eight to ten years recently, and, and done more uh, officiated more more weddings. And there's words matter. Like it, it, the whole process of getting married. First of all, you know those four words. You know, will you marry me? Which I, I you know, kind of, you know, the trend now is people already know before it's come. You know, there's no there's no more sweating on a knee going. I wonder what she's going to say. But there used to be those times when it's like somebody would you know, pop the question and, and say, will you marry me? And what are you waiting for? You're waiting desperately for someone to say, yes, yes. And those words matter. They matter. And I remember several years ago, uh, I, Beth and I were in counseling. Now, I know that that shocks some people have been to church, like the pastor's been in counseling. He must have some troubles. Um, if you've been around here, we, we think counseling is a great thing. Like no matter where you are, what season you're in, good or a difficult season, um, getting before another Christian that's objective, that can speak into your life, um, and that's actually been educated in counseling and working through issues with marriages, with family and all that. It's amazing. It's great. If you, if you need counseling, we've got tons of counseling resources because we love it. But anyway, I wasn't always in that in that camp where counseling is a great thing. And it, I, you know, somebody told me when you plant the church, like, man, you're going to need some counseling. Uh, I'm like, no, I'll be fine. And it wasn't long before I was like, counselor, please. Um, I'm hurt and wounded. Uh, and uh, down the road, just even getting, you know, marriage counseling, it's one of those things you're like, oh, you know, just, is everybody going to think, oh, the marriage is, is a train wreck. Um, but getting counseling was, was amazing. But I remember walking away uh, from... It, one of my first counseling sessions that Beth and I did together. And there was this feeling of, did he really do anything? Like, he just asked us to tell our story, how we met, you know, what's kind of been the nature of our relationship over the, you know, the years and uh, all of these things. But on the other side of the coin, I remember leaving the counseling session and having the best date we, we've ever had. Like, just skipping, you know, through the, we just loved each other. It's like we had fallen in love again. And I'm like, this guy's a genius. <laughs> but all he did, all he did was he forced us, the things that were internally in, inside of us about our stories, about how we felt about each other, about the feelings that we felt the moments before we realized that, hey, you like me, I like you. All of those things to verbalize those things and the other person to hear those words come out of their mouth once again reignited something and spoke a word over me and spoke words over Beth about, hey, this is the way that we met. Here's the feelings that we felt. This is what I think about you. And for me to remember how I feel about her and for her to hear how I feel about her and vice versa was so, so powerful. 
Words matter. Singular words in our, in our, in our life. It's one of the, the reasons that we read the Word of God, because words matter. Just funny little words. Like, they, they communicate so much when somebody says, you know, what, what's going on in life? I'm dating. I'm dating, you know, or engaged in a relationship or talking. You know, that usually starts with talking. Uh, we're talking. Yeah, that's what's happening. We're dating, you know, engaged. I'm married, you know. Just those, those simple things, those, those words that, that hit us in a certain, certain way, you know. Employed. It's good as a parent. You definitely want that for your children. Um, any, any of those the, the words, they, they continue to be powerful, and they, they speak something over our lives. Healed. Victory. I mean, those, those things say so much, but you can also say lost. We lost this one. Failed. That says something to our, to our heart and to our soul. Died. That's a hard one to hear. To, to, to externalize and bring to the outside. Divorced. Irreconcilable. Cancer. Words matter. They, they do something in, in terms of what they they evoke in our heart and in our mind. But the beautiful thing about God is he has the propensity to speak louder than anyone else, to speak over the noise. Because we speak to ourselves. I, I think often we, especially in Christian circles, we blame the enemy. The enemy's talking to me again. Well, it's probably you talking to you. You have spoken so many words over yourself, in and through your insecurity, in and through your sin, and in and through your flesh, and I have too that I'm a failure, that I'm never going to be good enough, that nobody likes me, that what I did was trash and, and how I acted, I can't bring that back. I'll never be able to, to, to get back into a place of right standing with this person. We speak those words and we, we, we lay in bed at night and we speak words over our own heart and our own mind. But the beauty of who God is and one of the amazing things that's displaced all through the gospel is that words matter. And there's simple words that if we, if we just, just move past them too quickly, we'll miss it. And they could change the trajectory of how you act on earth today. What does it mean that Jesus died on the cross for you today? If you're a follower of Jesus, you might think, okay, eternity, it's eternal security, you know? I gave my life to Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins, reconciled us, brought us back with God. And now when it's all said and done, after death, I get to go to heaven, eternal life. But what about now? What about the words that have been spoken over me in this moment? What about these, these times, these places? What about this moment? What's the cross speaking over you now? You know, when you look at this passage, let's look at starting in verse 28. Let's listen as God drowns out everything else with his voice in a moment like no other. This is Jesus understanding that later, knowing that everything now had been finished. Jesus knew that he was going to be a promise keeper, and he knew that there was a lot of prophecies and a lot of promises that God had made in his word. And he was going to hold on. He was going to keep himself planted on the cross until all of those things were done. And after they were finished, and so that Scripture could be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. You'll find that in Psalm 69, by the way. Almost identically to what we see 
in the Gospel of John. He says, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge and put it on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. There's so much that's being completed there. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. In uh, the Greek, uh, it's one singular word. Uh, it's tetelestai. That's what he mustered up enough strength as his last word, tetelestai. And it's interesting, it, the more you study this, I heard this several years ago uh, by a pastor. It was fascinating, so I, I kind of dug in to, to find out a little bit more about that word because in English we needed three words to, to, to match tetelestai. We needed to, to figure out, okay, how do we say this? How do we, and, and interestingly enough, and I know I warn against not getting too, you know, we can get overly like the Greek says this, and we can make the Bible say things that it really isn't saying. We should trust the people that have brought these translations up to us. They're smarter than me, and they're smarter than you. But even these translators would say, hey, you need to look into this word tetelestai, because it's in something we have, like in our, in our language, we have, you know, past tense, present tense, but they have other tenses in the, the Koine Greek. They have something called the perfect tense. Like for us, the present tense is, this is happening now. Past tense is, this has happened in the past. Very easy for us to understand. But they have something called the perfect tense, and this word tetelestai is in the perfect tense. Now listen to where I'm going, and this is, this is what, what's amazing about this word. The perfect tense speaks of an action which has been completed in the past. It is finished. So Jesus finished something on the cross. God completed something on the cross. All of these prophecies, reconciliation, the ability for us by faith to be back in the presence of God. But it's different from the past tense, which looks back to events and says this happened. The perfect tense adds the idea that what? This happened and is still in effect today. It happened and has an ongoing. It's the perfect tense. This happened, but yet it's still ongoing. This is complete, but there's still things that are being done as a result of what the cross has completed. That's the perfect tense. Okay, I don't know if that blows your mind. Because when we say it is finished, it is finished. But there's so many people in here that you're thinking, well, I know he's not done with me yet because this is where my life is. A lot of the words you said, Derek, are, are, are central to me. Divorced, cancer, I need healing, I'm broken, I'm lost. I've had words spoken over me. Is it really finished? Because if it's finished, I don't like where I am. I don't like what's going on in my life. And I'm not going into a heretical place because it, when he uttered those words, it was accomplished. And there was so much that was accomplished. But the beauty is that he's not done. So I want us, as we even get into this, I want you to see something really quick. This is, again, I'm going to geek out a little bit just in the Bible and theology. If you look at Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, you can even write that in the reference of John 19. Because if you're wondering, circle, it is finished in your Bible. And then write Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. In verse 12, it says, the author of Hebrews says this. So he says, but when Christ had offered, this is the moment for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He's pouring his blood out. 
He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. So there's something else that's going on, right? So he gave his life away, eventually ascended, which is what we see in Acts chapter 1. And he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. That's his return. But for a single offering, he perfected. This is what he did in verse 14. This is huge. For a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you get it? In that one sentence, this is amazing to me right here. For a single offering, he perfected for all time those being sanctified. So what? Perfect? You, this is what Dave said last week, in a moment, the the great exchange, you, you get Christ's righteousness by faith. Not by anything that you've done, you get his righteousness. It is complete. You are perfect in his eyes. But guess what else it says? Being sanctified, it's ongoing. Perfect, complete, but you're being sanctified. So it is finished, but he's not done. It is finished, let's say that together. It is finished, but he's not done. One more time. It is finished, he's not done. He's not done. I want you to see this really quickly before we come together at the table. That Jesus accomplished some amazing things at the cross, and we can't, they're they're innumerable, but we're going to look at at five. But he's also accomplishing something in the same vein as these things are happening. So it's, it's, this is what he's done, but we are still, as, as human beings, as people that are being perfected, right? There's a, there's a completeness to our righteousness, but there's a being sanctified. There's a, a movement away from who we were into the person that Christ wants us to be and the miracles that are possible for us. So there'll, there'll be a, a grid. Accomplished, this is what he did, and accomplishing. Okay? So the first one is reconciled. And if I could, could add to this, reconciled in his presence. Increasing the value of his presence is where I think we struggle. So we're reconciled to God. And I'm going to kind of break this down. And then for us, we're moving into places where we, we slowly are increasing in our own heart the value of what it means to be in his presence. We want to be in his, his presence more and more. Because of what Jesus has done, at this moment, when he said it is finished, and Dave had a masterclass illustration last week. If you weren't there, you need to go and watch it on YouTube. You need to check it out. It is amazing. But he talked about his training uh, as a fireman. They did, you, you trained with the linemen for, uh, with uh, Beaches Energy, right? JEA. J-E-A. And he drew this just simple illustration that showed how voltage works and that it kind of works its way out from the center in terms of how powerful. So if there's 100,000 volts in a downed power line, there's death at the center. You can't be there. And he talked about the fracture in the Garden of Eden, the fracture in our flesh, that there's a broken and a downed power line, and we can't come into the presence of God. We can't. The person we were created to be in community with and in relationship with. Mind-blowing illustration to me. 
All I could think when I saw this, this spiral of the voltage of God's power in his presence in this illustration, because he's you know, telling this story like you can't come near 100,000 volts. You've got to put on a suit. You've got to have this stick that you can touch the wire with, and everybody's staying away from it. And all I could think of is God created a, a, a place for us leading up to the cross. It was the temple. And when I looked at that spiral, all I could see was the temple of God. You could see outside the temple and the outer rings. You know, this is the safe place where the voltage ain't going to get you. Then you see the inner courts, you know, the court of the women. And then you move in to the altar of incense. And then you've got what? You've got the curtain. And then you've got the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, right? Well, what's between the, somebody that's been to Sunday school, altar of incense, and the Holy of Holies? The curtain. Four inches thick, really, really tall. When Jesus said it is finished, what happens to the curtain? Torn from top to bottom. Guess what? We can now be in his presence. We can be in his presence. But we don't, the gravity of that is so lost on me. It's so lost on me that, that I could be in his presence. I am reconciled to his presence, but the increasing value of his presence in my heart that's ongoing. I am absolutely allowed to be in his presence. I can boldly approach the throne of grace. But do I think about it that way? Do I, do I, is there awe and wonder in the way that I approach who he is? A guy that, that was actually a lay person in a monastery um, who's become famous since then, they brought his writings together because everybody wanted to know what's going on with Brother Lawrence. In the 17th century, if you ever read Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, it's fascinating. And he was, he, was just, he was just a dude. And people were like, this guy, he's got something figured out. He's, got a, he's, kind of dis, he's disabled, but he's the happiest. And he has, he's, they, they, they're like, he's got a direct line to God. Like, this guy knows what's up. And people would ask him, and he would write all of this stuff. And people collected his writings and put it into a book. It's famous in Christian circles. He says that we need only to recognize God intimately present with us to address ourselves in him every moment. He's like, you can be in God's presence in every moment. You need to acknowledge him. He says, if you want it to change your life, he's like, engage with God. And more and more, as you become a follower of Jesus, there's these moments where you realize, I can't believe I get to be in the presence of God. Those moments where Maybe, and I don't think you know, everybody in here has got a prayer closet, but you get in that space with God, you open your Bible, and it may be different for some of you. Maybe it's worshiping in your car. I know that's Gerald's jam. It's like, God is in my Toyota right now. I feel him. My man's, he said, I, I, I've caught Gerald a few times cruising down A1A, just <laughs> singing and crying, thinking about Jesus in the presence of God in his Toyota. Right there. Reconciled. Holy of Holies, Toyota Corolla. It's so unbelievable to be in your closet, open the word of God and have you know, your headphones on and be listening to Jesus paid it all or whatever it is is your, your, your jam. And then all of a sudden, you, you, you feel, you get a sense of God's presence just engaging with who he is. And the value meter goes up and you're, you're on your knees and you realize I, gotta be on my, I need to be on my face right now. Because it's me and the king of the universe that created all things. And I'm here and I'm with him. 
And I can't believe I'm allowed to be here. And the value meter, the value meter goes up. So yes, you're reconciled, but we want to be changed over and over and over again, more and more into this person that understands the value of his presence because it's accessible anytime in your day. Brother Lawrence, anytime. He's like, in your car, wherever you are, just acknowledge him. When you eat, acknowledge him. When you're walking down the road and you're seeing something, acknowledge him. When you watch the sunset, acknowledge him. It's engaging in a relationship with God, being in the presence of the creator of the universe, reconciled, increasing the value of his presence. Number two, promises kept. I won't stay a long time on this because we kind of already talked about it. You've got promises that were kept, and then you've got trusting the promise keeper. This, is, this, is a, this blows me away because you've, just in the few minutes that we read on the cross, there was like seven things that that are happening simultaneously that are all prophecies that happen. Of the 300 that were being fulfilled by Jesus being on planet Earth, his death, burial, and resurrection. He's betrayed, called a king, mocked and ridiculed, soldiers that would gamble for his garment. He was falsely accused, crucified with criminals, his hands and feet pierced, just to name a few, that are happening right there. Promises that are being kept. And you know what's beautiful about that? is that we have a promise-keeping God that cares about the gambling of garments. He's like, oh, we're going to make sure that. I know that's, I said it was going to happen. It's going to happen. If he cares about the gambling of garments, then he cares about you. We've got a God that cares about the details. And I think we have a, a, a view that's broken of who, who God is. Yes, the God of the universe. But now remember, he's accessible and he's the promise keeper. He keeps his promises. Because some of you are wondering, will he leave me or will he forsake me? Some of you feel in this moment that you are alone. And Jesus is, is promising you right now you will not be alone, that he will never leave you or forsake you because he's a promise-keeping God. You, you, we, we need this. He cares about you. He cares about the details of your life. We just have to look at his track record. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, he says, he didn't spare his own son. How much, how much will he give you? He didn't spare his own son. So yes, we see that he kept all the promises, but, but we have to remember that he's a promise keeper. And how do we do that? We, we engage with his word and we see his track record time and time again. We sing these songs and we remember his track record time and time again that he's a promise-keeping God. Number three, guess what? This is pretty special. You got a new heart. If you're a follower of Jesus by faith, guess what you get? A new heart. And, and obviously, I don't have to explain. You didn't get an actual new heart. But when we say in our vernacular, when we talk about this idea of a new heart, I think we, we, we understand what we're talking about. You got a new heart. One of the prophecies in Scripture is, is, is beautiful. Um, found on some coffee cups. I think it's a little deeper than that. But if you look in Ezekiel, it says this. It says, I will, uh, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And this is about what happens in the moment when Jesus utters it is finished. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I'm cleaning you. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a spirit in you. 
I will remove from you, what, a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He's saying before you couldn't do it. You had no, no capacity to keep my laws, but you've got a new heart. See, this is where people's theology gets broken. I think sometimes we, we think, okay, well, you know, we, we are, all of human, the human race is corrupted. That's good theology. Yes, you are born a sinner. But where, where we miss it is that we got a new heart. You, you are a new creation in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a new creation. Now, does that mean you don't ever sin? No. You have the propensity to sin. But before, you had no choice to do anything but fight for you. You had no, no choice to do anything but self-sustain. You had to protect yourself. You had to worry about death because death wasn't taken care of for you. You had to worry about dying, making sure you got a safe environment. You had to worry about who you are as a human being. Do, do, do people like me? And hey, am I going to be successful in life? And we are navel gazers. We, we, we're going to pick the things that satisfy our flesh. We're going to pick the things that give us pleasure. We're going to pick the things that, that, that protect us and keep us safe from our ultimate death. Now, all of a sudden, it is finished. What's accomplished is you've got a new heart. But guess what? You don't, you don't, realize, you don't even know how to use the new heart. I mean, they have to have a whole, when people, new heart, like transplant patients, they got to have like a whole, they get a whole book on, you got a new heart. Now, this is what you got to do to use your new heart. Your old heart, it died. You got a new one, but we got some things you got to do with this, this new heart. I remember years ago, uh, I had this friend of mine who was, he was, when he was in like middle school, sixth and seventh grade, he was normal height, height of everybody else. Like we were all kind of, you know, little, you know, little dudes. All the girls are like this tall and we're all kind of going, hey, how you doing? We're going to go to a dance. Woo! You know, it's real, you know, awkward middle school years. And then my man hit about ninth grade, eighth, eight, eight, middle of eighth grade, ninth grade. Dude just went bing and just got big. Six foot five, 245 as a sophomore in high school. Now, he was one of those guys, you know, he just didn't, he didn't realize how big he was. And he played on the football team. And, you know, me and my buddies are like, I would dream of being that big. I would crush people. Um, but, but we weren't. So we would tell him, hey, hey, you're big. You're massive. That guy in front of you, he's just, you know, kind of blocking like this and doing his thing. And he's like, I don't know, man. It's kind of weird. I feel bad. I don't know if I can do it. I'm just, just not sure I can get it done. And we're like, dude, look in the mirror. You are huge. I mean, high school, six foot five, 245. We would say, that guy, you do not need to be scared of that guy. You can crush that guy into the dirt every single time. He played both ways because the coach is like, he's massive. We got to put him out there for defense and offense. And he would just stand. We just like use him. He'd just stand in the way and just like, I'm here. You can't get around me. He's just big. And then he would just, you know, push people over. But we would get him all riled up. We would get, get him mad. We'd make fun of him, get him angry, just so he's, oh, you know, go kill him. You know, we'd have to get him all pumped up. Because we had to say, this is who you are. You don't even know what, what's been given to you, what God's given you. You can crush that guy. And the enemy comes to us all the time, trying to get us to that place of saying, well, I just, you know, until Jesus comes back, man, I'm just going to always struggle with this sin. I'm just going to always struggle in this area. You know, I can't, I keep stumbling and fumbling. Yes, you keep stumbling and fumbling. You think God's surprised that you don't bumble around? You just got a new heart. You hadn't figured it all out yet. But what he tells you in his word is that you're being sanctified. That he who began a good work in you, right? Philippians 1.6. He's going to complete that work. 
Same word, that complete word in Philippians 1.6. Same, same word, perfect tense, teleo. He's going to complete it. Ongoing, though. It's ongoing. It's amazing to me. The enemy comes along telling you, you know, you're not, not gonna, it's never going to get better. Ha, 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 ha. I can crush you in the dirt. You hadn't heard? Got a new heart. So every time we, we get in that space, and I'm not telling you it's not a war and it's not a battle. Because on this side of hell, we got stuff coming at us from every direction. Our culture is just throwing everything at us. It's telling us this is okay, this is normal, and it's not normal to engage in the activities that are laid before us. But now there's, there's a new pathway that, that's been illuminated, and our new heart thrives on it. It's called righteousness. And we can go that way, away from death and towards life in every way, because you got a new heart. You got a new heart, and we're learning to live with a new heart. That's why we come to church. Sometimes, I don't know. I mean, I think about me and my friend George telling my friend John, who was massive, you know, bro, you have no idea what you have access to. And people are like, why do I need church? Well, that's why you need church, because you need two homies that are telling you, you have no idea what you have access to. You need to be singing with brothers and sisters in unison to listen to what you have access to. That's how we learn about our new heart. Because it is finished, but he's not done. Let's say it again. It is finished, but he's not done. Number four. Instantly, as we follow Jesus by faith, what he accomplished for us on the cross as he said, it is finished, and he breathed his last, as we, are, we have approval in his eyes. But as human beings, we have to learn that we need to get to a place of living from, not for approval. So we have approval, but living from that space and, and, and living from that place is difficult for us, isn't it? To remember that, that people... And the world around us, our accomplishments, our resume, is not our hope. And it's so hard to live from approval and not for approval. I just said this, and this is, you know, I think this applies in so many different rooms that you walk into, so many different places. If you're in high school and you're walking into your high school, it, it, it's it's. Your, your head's on a swivel because you're wondering who likes me, what crowd do I go to, what corner do I go to, where do I go in the cafeteria. But it happens for us as adults. In every job that you have, everywhere that you go, we're seeking and trying to find, okay, where am I going to get worth and where am I going to get value? And there's nothing wrong with looking for worth and looking for value because God made you that way. But if we look in the wrong places and we plant our hope with other people, they are going to let us down, even your spouse is going to crumble under the weight of your need for approval. When I walk up here, I tell it, Gerald knows it, I walk up here on stage because I know I got all you people out here and y'all make me nervous. So I, I walk up and I say, I am a loved son of God every Sunday because I have to remember that I'm not, I'm not preaching or speaking to you for your approval. I want you, I want to be able to give you something, not take something from you. 
your laughter or your approval. We, we, we as, a, as a church family, we want to we know Jesus. And then we want the people outside these walls to know Jesus. I, I, want, I want you to see what's in the, in the Bible. I want you to see what's in God's word. I want you to understand who he is and what he's done for you. That we could walk out of here with a confidence that we've never had before. To live life like we've never lived before. Because it's finished. But he's not done. He's not done. The Apostle Paul, he says it so beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I'm free from any and all men. And he's talking about his resume. He's talking about his apostolic acumen, like they, they were thinking, okay, you're not really an apostle. You didn't, you didn't see Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he's like, look, whatever you want to say about me is fine. Whatever you think about me is fine. I'm free from any and all men. And then you know what he says? This is pretty crazy. He says, so I make myself a slave to any and all. See, he's so free that he doesn't, serving people is not beneath him. Doing anything that he can to bring people into the kingdom of God is not beneath him. In the, in the humblest of ways, in the most glorious of ways, the Apostle Paul wanted to see people come to know him. I'm free from any and all men, but I make myself a slave. Because, see, we are, when we're not free, we can't serve anybody. When we're looking for people's approval, we, we can't serve anyone, because we're going to serve who? We're going to serve us. But when you're free and you, you quit the navel-gazing, man, it is the most beautiful thing. And it was accomplished for you. Approval. You're, you're loved. You're not just, like, you don't just know the king. You're in the king's family. Right? You can go into the king's bedroom and knock on the door and go, Hey, Dad, I need some stuff. Help. The access to the king. We forget. And more and more, glory over glory, we start to realize who we're connected to. And the, the less we need the, the accolades of man because we're already sons and daughters of the king. Lastly, what he bought for us, what he did when he said it is finished is he gave us freedom. He gave us freedom. But we struggle as human beings to live free. You know, if you look at John 19, you know, today is, is about the burial. I always think about what was accomplished in the grave, right? There's all kinds of crazy theology thinking about where did Jesus go, right? Did he go up to heaven to be with God? Is he down in the things? Is he kicking butt in hell, you know? What's he doing down there? What's happening in the grave? And you read this passage in John 19, 41. It says that the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. He's placed in a tomb. It was the, back then, it was like, it was like caves. They, they, they were, they were, it was different. It transitioned. Jewish burials changed centuries later, but it was these, these caves, these catacombs. And Jesus is in there, and his body, he's gone, right? He's, he's dead. He's experienced death the way that we experience death. So... What, what's happening? Where does he go? Well, there's all kinds of things in Scripture. You, okay, well, he told the thief on the cross, well, today you'll be with me in paradise, okay? He's definitely going to paradise. That's one of his stops, right? He's going to be there. 
But what's, what's he doing? What's, where is he at? And I, I immediately, as I was kind of, kind of pulling across all the theology, because nobody really knows exactly what went down. All we know is that he defeated the enemy, that he freed the captives, that the saints that were in waiting, like Moses, Abraham, David, all them, they've all of a sudden, they get, to, they get to be in heaven with Jesus and they're no longer wherever this middle ground is, paradise or whatever it is they're in. We know all that took place, but how, you know, it, you know we read in Ephesians, what? That he went to the lower, lower regions of the earth before he ascended. So there's a lot of assumptions in the commentary, but what Jesus himself says in, in Revelation chapter one, he's speaking to John, John who was the only disciple that was not martyred, didn't get killed for his faith but he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And you know what kind of some secular history says is they couldn't kill him. Like he was preaching the gospel and the, the Roman uh, governor at the time and the Roman emperor at the time wanted to take him out, but they, could, they, they tried to boil him in oil and he kept popping out of the oil. Praise Jesus, and they stunk him down in boiling oil. Praise the Lord, you know, he's still preaching, you know, coming out of the oil. And they're like, what are we going to do with this guy? We got to get rid of him. You can't kill him. So, and then they were worried about trying to kill him another way because what if he survives? This dude will be legend, right? So they're like, let's get him out of here, like out of people's faces where they can't see him anymore. So he gets exiled to the island of Patmos. And God, just in his, how God's grace and mercy comes to those suffering saints is amazing to me, the stories. God comes to him in a vision and allows him to experience the risen Christ, Jesus in his glorified form. And he says, I saw this, the son of man. His hair was like white wool. There's fire shooting out of his eyes, feet like burnished bronze. When he spoke, it was like rushing waters. That always gives me chills when I think about him speaking and it's like rushing waters. So there's a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. John says he's terrified and, and, and and Jesus, this is the coolest thing because you think about John who wrote the, the passage we were in, but he also wrote Revelation. He was tight with Jesus. In fact, he, he, he kind of alludes to the fact in the third person, they were besties. You know, it's like he was, you know, I'm the disciple that he loved. I mean, that's what he said. Laid his head on his shoulder. Can you imagine? The king of the, the universe. And they sat by the campfire. like, hey buddy, what's going on? You know, it's a lot better than me and Dave. That's great. He's in this moment and he's seeing, you know, face shining bright like the sun. And he's terrified. He's like, just like Isaiah in, in, in chapter six, you know, like when he gets in the presence of God, he's just like, I, I shouldn't be here. So what does he do? It says that he falls down as though dead, hits the ground. Because that's what we, we would do in the presence of Jesus in his glorified. And Jesus, so sweet, puts his hand on his, his shoulder. I gotta read this because it's so it's so good. He says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Now listen, wondering where he was at? I love this. I was dead. It's dead in that garden tomb. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. It is finished, but he's not done. He's not done. And I, I love that we're doing communion today because if anything communicates, it's finished and he's not done. It's the table. When, when Jesus, he, I, I wonder if, if he was super somber because we, we come to the table sometimes. It's like, 
you know, it's, it's the night my man's going to be crucified, right? He's going to be the next day. It's, it's all over. And he's, we, you know that he was, it was an intense thing for him. The Garden of Gethsemane goes before God and says, hey, if this cup can pass and, and I don't have to do this, then there's another way. But, but, but your will, not mine, be done. So we know it wasn't easy. But was the, was the feast this, we make it, you know, it, was it, or was it a bunch of dudes that were friends breaking bread? And Jesus foreshadowing his death when he's with his friends. I just wonder what this moment was like. If, if maybe there was a transition in, in the mood and he's, he's excited to say that this is, this is my body. It's broken for you. It's my body broken for you. Once and for all time, this is my blood. It's a new covenant in my blood. No longer high voltage in the temple, right? The curtain has been been ripped. The system is gone and now there is a savior. Now there is access, right? All the way up, boldly approaching the throne. New covenant in my blood. He wants them to know, hey, it is finished. But guess what? You're going to keep doing this ongoing sanctification. Because when you do communion, he's he's telling them, you're going to keep doing this to remind you so that you will remember. Body broken, blood poured out, new covenant. I want you to know who you are. I want you to know who you are. I want you to know what I paid. I want you to know your worth to me. I want you to know that the enemy has been defeated. I want you to know that I have and hold the keys to death and Hades. I want you to know that I'm coming back for you. It's a powerful representation. So as we take communion today, this is, this is a celebration for us as a community of believers, right? This is the most beautiful thing. You follow Jesus by faith that we are in this family together with him. The one that has a face shining like the sun, so much so that we're not gonna need a sun. So if the, if the servers would come forward that are serving communion today, it's gonna take a little bit of time, a few people in here. You just can sit at your seat, you can pray right here in the presence of God. Um, but then when you're ready, you just kind of line up. You'll kind of see, um, and they'll kind of direct you through communion. It's very simple. Um, for those of you that, like if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's new to you, don't feel any obligation. In fact, this is for um, people that have given their life to Jesus. Maybe that's happening right now. Maybe God's done that over the last couple of months. Maybe it's a moment today where the Spirit of God has changed something in you and you believe that, man, I would love uh, to celebrate with you today, uh, this being your first communion. I always say this, is, this table is for everyone, but it's, it's, it comes one way. It's for everyone. It's open for everyone. But it comes through Jesus Christ alone, his broken body and his blood poured out. So I'm going to pray. And uh, when I do, we'll take communion together. God, we thank you for everything that you've done, for your beautiful word that teaches us who we are in you, what you've done for us, and what you're still continuing to do in our lives. In Jesus' name.